Welcome along to 20 Minute Topic. I'm Marcus Stead and I'm joined as usual by Greg Lance Watkins, who's been an anti-EU campaigner for 60, yes, 60 years. We're now a week into 2021. There are no queues of lorries on the motorways of Kent. There's been no emergency budget. World War Three has not broken out. The end of Western civilization has not happened. The pound has not collapsed and Project Fear has been completely and utterly discredited. Join us as we analyse the pros and the cons of the Brexit deal. Well, Greg, the deal was concluded on the afternoon of Christmas Eve and also during a time when concerns over the pandemic were increasing. So perhaps the deal didn't have the level of scrutiny in the mainstream media and among the general public as it would have done under normal circumstances, because for those two reasons, people's minds were elsewhere at the time. But I think it's worth reflecting to begin with on just how far we've come in the last two years. We had Prime Minister Theresa May and her checkers surrender, a withdrawal agreement she'd negotiated that would have left us with Brexit in name only, leaving the United Kingdom with EU vassal status indefinitely. We had the disgraceful spectacle of a parliament and a speaker of the House of Commons in John Burko doing everything they could to try and frustrate, delay, water down and preferably block Brexit. It felt at that particular moment as though the best we could hope for was membership of EFTA, the European Free Trade Area, with a Norway style arrangement. And what we've now got, Greg, is something far better than that, because unlike Norway, the UK won't have to pay a penny to Brussels for access to the single market. Uh, Boris Johnson's team, headed by David Frost, has negotiated the first no tariffs, no quotas deal. The EU has agreed with any other country. Freedom of movement will end. European Court of Justice jurisdiction will end. We will regain control of our money, our borders and our laws. This is a good deal. And the chairman of Tesco supermarkets, John Allen, says that any changes to the food prices after the deal has been implemented are likely to be very modest indeed and would hardly be felt in terms of the prices consumers are paying. So while far from perfect, and we'll talk about the flaws in the deal in a moment, overall, I have to say, Greg, Boris Johnson was elected on a manifesto to get Brexit done. And on that, he has delivered. I think that Boris Johnson has taken an awful lot of stick and done an awful lot of work in very difficult times and has delivered more than anybody could have expected of him. The deal is not perfect. Uh, it's very easy for people to try and pretend it is and then score political points as we have seen from, unfortunately, the Labour Party in many ways, in trying to nitpick the details that weren't perfect. No deal in the history of negotiation has ever been perfect from one side, unless, of course, you think of the deal that ended the First World War, which was perfect from uh, the Allies' side, um, in that reparations were massive, etc. But it was so one-sided that it gave rise to causing the Second World War. And I think the same would have happened if he had gone any further in setting up the deal in Britain's favour. It would never have held together. Yes, we have got control of our borders. There are discussion points on it. There are similarly problems with some aspects of moving goods from Britain 
to the continent. But that leaves us in a position to have some element of control over goods coming from Europe to Britain. Mm. Yes, we have control of our, our fishing and our sea in five years time. Yeah, Greg, I want to talk about this. This is, this is one of my two areas of concern, and you've said the word fishing, so we'll deal with that now. Since entering what was then the EEC in 1973, the British fishing industry has been utterly decimated as a direct consequence. Fishing rights feel emotionally important in negotiations, and they did play a significant part in the campaign of 2016, the referendum campaign. But in terms of fishing's economic importance, it is minuscule. Now, in 2016, the turnover for the entire UK fishing industry was £725 million. Now, to put that into perspective, the turnover for Harrods department store alone was £2 billion. Those in what is left of our fishing industry have good reason to be disappointed with this agreement because foreign vessels will still be allowed to trawl our waters, take a large chunk of the catch for the next five and a half years. But come 2026, we will assume full autonomy over our fisheries. That's not to say another deal won't be done to allow limited access for European fishermen. But on the plus side, that'll give us time to rebuild our fishing fleet with the help of government grants. So it's not all doom and gloom as I see it there. I don't think it's all doom and gloom anyway. The fishing fleets, uh, much of what we lost was due to the venality of fishermen in Britain because they took advantage of selling their quotas to make money in large sums. Uh, it's just that but when they did that, um, they didn't seem to twig initially that if you didn't have a quota, you couldn't own a fishing vessel. And the vessels were, um, many of them, um, taken out of the sea, many of them dismantled, many of them recycled. But that led to um, worse than the decimation of British fishing. Uh, it led to the almost destruction of British fishing, as you say, bringing it down to 725 million a year, when it had been a very major industry, uh, when we actually joined the European Union and um, Ted Heath and his cronies literally gave our fishing rights away. Uh, at that stage, almost nobody had asked other than to be able to agree to fishing in our waters on quotas. Hmm. So the fishermen are to, in many ways to blame, not the ones who are fishermen today, but those who made a great deal of money out of selling their quotas to European entities. And at that stage, Britain was not very good at handling the rules of the European Union. And whilst Spain, particularly, and France, found ways around subsidizing their fishermen to buy those quotas, ostensibly with their own money, but it seemed with huge grants from their governments, and buy state-of-the-art brand new fishing vessels, because it is said that of all the fishing 
that goes out of this country, something like 80% of it is handled by five vessels. Yeah, well, that's believable based on the uh, statistics we just gave. Now, the other area that gives some cause for concern is regulatory alignments, and this is something that's in the deal. There are level playing field measures which commit both the UK and the EU to maintain common standards on workers' rights, as well as many social and environmental regulations. They do not have to be identical, so the UK does not have to follow EU law, but they do have to be seen to protect fair competition. The UK also agreed to stick to common principles on how state aid regimes work and to an independent competition agency which will assess them, um, how independent that agency will be will, remains to be seen. Now, this is something that does concern me. It's a step too far for my liking. I would prefer it if it wasn't the case, but it is something we can live with. It also means the government would likely face obstacles if it tried to, say, nationalise a major industry or played a major interventionist role in certain sectors. Now, could, for example, the government create a major state-owned shipbuilding company under this deal? Quite possibly not. Now, George Galloway, who played a big part in the uh, campaign to deliver Brexit in 2016 and has um, continued to bang the drum for Brexit in the years since through his broadcast work, his political ideology is different to yours and mine in terms of the role of the state in the economy. But he made a very, very good point on this in that his preferred outlook, if you like, where the state plays a big role in the economy um, and he does believe in nationalisation and he probably, well, he would because he said as much, he would support a nationalised British shipbuilding industry. He is concerned that this, what we've agreed to on this uh, in terms of regulatory alignment and state aid would prevent the government from creating those nationalised industries. Now, forget whether you personally agree with it or whether you don't. The point being, Greg, that really is a decision for us as a country to make. Do you think they've gone a little bit too far in agreeing to this? Oh, yes, I think that is one of the downsides that uh, we've had to concede to in order to get our way in many other areas. Uh, mm. That is called negotiation. Um, you only have to uh, look at the plotting that goes on in a school playground to know that there are conspiracies to organise um, to get your own way in every gang in the playground. Look at any marriage, it's a trade-off. The uh, husband will get his way on some things and the wife will get her way on other things. Mm. And without that, um, it's not a marriage, it's a slavery agreement. Mm. It's not not remotely concerning that this exists, it will lead to um, endless negotiation. Some mm. of it may well be fairly acrimonious, um, mm. but it also means that um, we can, to some extent, control um, French companies like Nissan in Sunderland, who, although they appear to be Japanese, are in fact Renault, and a partnership with Renault, uh, which is a French company, and it means that um, British Gas, which uh, despite its name is a French company, can take their own line on some things, uh, and sometimes we may have to put our foot down. At mm. the moment, we have a problem developing with British Gas, where the engineers are coming out on strike because the French owners 
wish to fire the engineers and rehire them, mm. totally altering their work agreements. Yeah, in the time we've got left, I want to talk now about the future and where we go from here. Now, with an annual output of £191 billion, the UK is still the ninth largest manufacturer in the world. 2.7 million people are employed in this vital sector. I would urge people to, where possible, uh, support our manufacturers and buy British. But we do have decisions to make as to where we now go from here, freed from the shackles of the EU and what sort of a country we build. Um, you and I have talked in previous podcasts about the need to rebalance things because London, London and the southeast of England are overheating. Uh, we need to rebalance the economy in various ways as far as that goes. But on the big fundamental questions, do we want to go down the route of Singapore with an entrepreneurial, low-regulation economy, or do we favour a different model along more socialist, interventionist lines, which would also have been impossible while inside the EU for partly the reasons you and I discussed just a moment ago? There is a big debate to be had about that, and the size of the task is enormous. There are, this is what concerns me, there are a significant number of MPs in the House of Commons on all sides who, to me, it seems very clear they are not up to the job. The calibre of elected representative across all parties will need to improve. It's to say, the size of the task is enormous. I do fear that the, the sort of people we've got in the House of Commons are not up to the job. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think ever since uh, we joined the European Union, um, very much under mis conceptions of what the European was, Union was, and also overlooking the fact that their legal structure was completely different to that of Britain, the calibre of our MPs has fallen like a brick. And a case in point, I, I in many ways do not have a lot of time for, for Boris Johnson. And I know from earlier comments you've made, nor do you. Mm, but on the nice. other hand, can you, in that entire chamber of MPs, think of a single solitary one of them who could have made as good a job of Brexit whilst working with his hands tied behind his back to cope with COVID and get most of that spot on right? whether it was on the right day of the week that he did it, or did he do it too soon or too late, will always be a moot point. Can you think of anyone else in that chamber who could have handled that? Because sure to hell, all the people who tried it before had failed abysmally. Well, this is an important point because I think back to December 2019 and the general election we had then. My ballot paper effectively offered me a choice between a Conservative government led by Boris Johnson or a Labour government led by Jeremy Corbyn. Now, you imagine what the last 12 and a bit months would have been like if Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party had won. How would That's he have handled... Well, how would... Yeah, how would he have... Point one, how would he have handled things, the events of January last year, getting the withdrawal agreement through the House of Commons? Well, he would have backpedalled on that, and we would likely quite likely indeed, have ended up staying in the European Union, despite the fact that for many, well, many decades, Jeremy Corbyn was a Eurosceptic. But then we would have had the spectacle of COVID coming along with the prospect of Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister, John McDonnell as Chancellor, Diane Abbott as Home Secretary. He wouldn't have had a clue 
how to deal with the virus. So that was the choice I and the British people were faced with in December of 2019. Do you want a Conservative government led by Boris Johnson, who will get Brexit done and deliver? Or do you want one led by Jeremy Corbyn? And Boris Johnson, you know, all right, I, I go on about this because my prediction that he would win with an 80-seat majority turned out to be absolutely spot on. But he has delivered on what he said he was going to do. However, you look at what he's, got, he's working with. Now, let's take an obvious example. Gavin Williamson was forced to resign as Defence Secretary when Theresa May was Prime Minister. He's been brought back in as England's Education Secretary. And again, he's been proven to be hopelessly out of his depth. But then I look at the, the backbenches of the Conservative Party, including many who were elected in the general election of 2019, and they also are either embarrassingly bad or just not very bright. This is a problem, Greg. There is not enough talent in the House of Commons on all sides. For, for us to take advantage of the opportunities Brexit brings, you need a government that knows what it's doing and an opposition that looks like a government in waiting. And I don't feel as though we have that at the moment. Oh, I think, uh, to be quite honest, uh, trying to build a cabinet on, from the benches of either party in Parliament um, is extremely difficult. Um, trying to build a cabinet when you've only got enough material to make a matchbox um, is really quite difficult. And mm. the calibre of some of those ministers is going to be wanting. However, stop anyone in the street, whoever they support, and ask them to name five people on the front bench of the Labour Party. Mm. I doubt they'll yeah. be able to. I sure to hell can't. Mm. Mm. because they're such low calibre that they don't even make ripples within their party. Well, I, I even wonder, among those who don't follow politics all that closely, how many of them are even aware of who Sir Keir Starmer is, and he's leader of the opposition. Even his profile isn't all that high. How many people oh, can exactly. name the... <laughs> well, how many can name the Shadow Chancellor? How many can name the Shadow Home Secretary, the Shadow Foreign Secretary? You know, these are all supposed to be government ministers in waiting, and they don't have a very high profile at all. Um, so to conclude then, my final remarks on this... I don't think there's anybody on the front bench. I don't think well, anybody no. on the front benches of the Labour Party um, is any use whatsoever. They wouldn't have even featured on the back benches of the Labour Party 40 years ago. Well, yeah, there's certainly nobody of the calibre we saw during the years of uh, Ackley. And, well, you think now you can probably name a, a number of ministers uh, from the uh, Harold Wilson and Jim Callaghan era. You can remember people like Michael Foote, Barbara Castle, Roy Jenkins, Tony Benn. These names roll off the tongue uh, in many cases when they've been dead for decades. And there's no one of that calibre around now. And, and, and that is a concern, whether you agree with their politics or not, at least they were household names. The current lot on the Labour benches are not. That is the reality of where we are. So my concluding remarks are, is this deal absolute perfection? No, not by a long way. Is it considerably better than Theresa May's withdrawal agreement? Definitely. Is it better than being part of the undemocratic and bureaucratic European Union? Undoubtedly, yes. They're my final thoughts. How would you sum it up, Greg? We have the very best deal we could have possibly got. And praise be, we're out of the European Union. That's 60 years of opposition to being in the European Union on my part personally. And I, many people will, will laugh at the fact that my um, 
persona on Twitter says that um, I intend to see Britain, despite having um, had my challenges with cancer and heart attacks and being 75 years of age this month, I had every intention of staying alive until I'd had a good period of living in Britain as a free country liberated from vassal status of the utterly corrupt European Union. Well, long may you continue, Greg. I hope you do enjoy your birthday when it comes up later this month. But I think we should also remember some of those who didn't quite make it uh, to the end of the journey of Britain leaving the European Union. In particular, the first name that comes into my head won't surprise you, and that's Christopher Booker. Time has beaten us again. My thanks, as always, to Greg. My thanks to you for listening. Join us again next time.